Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. You've been to North Korea. What's it like to visit? It was fascinating to be able to go in and confirm many of the things, many of the the assumptions that I had about North Korea, uh, to revise a number of them, to bring a human face to you know an academic understanding, importance of individuals, understand the importance of culture. You get a sense that every North Korean is a survivor. They're surviving in a very harsh environment. And and so going there and, and getting a feel for that really uh, deepened my appreciation for what, what you might call the ontological dimensions of North Korea. What What is it that makes North Korea different? You've dealt directly with North Korean officials. What is that like? Negotiations with North Korea are never easy. and And often you walk away with you know, a question of whether a negotiation had actually taken place or simply an exchange of views. We are always limited in in the level with whom we engage based upon Pyongyang's intent. So what is Kim Jong-un like as a person, as a leader? How would you describe him? I, I like to deflect attention away from elements of Kim's personality. I think particularly, you know, among academics, there's a lot of speculation about Kim and his personality. I like to look at North Korea's behavior and its public actions uh, to try to assess where Kim Jong-un is, particularly in comparison to his his father and, and his grandfather. Sid Seiler is the U.S. intelligence community's national intelligence officer for North Korea. Sid has worked on North Korea for 40 years in intelligence roles, policy jobs, and military assignments. He has more experience on North Korea than anyone else in the U.S. government and perhaps in the world. Sid just sat down to talk to us about his career and to talk about the country that has so confounded every U.S. president since George H.W. Bush. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. 
I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Sid, welcome to Intelligence Matters. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you on the show. Michael, thank you so very much for this opportunity. It's a pleasure to be here. So you and I have known each other for a very long time, and I am thrilled that my listeners are going to get to know you a bit as well. What I'd love to do, Sid, is is start with your career, which can only be characterized as remarkable because you became throughout your career what I believe the U.S. national security community should be producing and that's individuals with deep, deep expertise on the most important threats and challenges that our country faces. So I would love to ask you to walk us through how you came to work in government and how you came to work on North Korea and why you have stuck with it for so long. Uh, Michael, that's a, a kind way of characterizing what has been somewhat of an atypical career when you look at the standard uh, processes and job assignments that your average intelligence officer, regardless of agency, goes through, I actually started out in the military as a Korean linguist. I was a voice signal intercept operator, putting headphones on and listening to things. Uh, you know, early on in in the middle of the Cold War, from think about the peak years of the Cold War, the 1980s. So my first exposure to the North Korean issue was as a, a, a SIGINT voice intercept operator. After a while, after doing that for a while, I moved on to uh, work in the defense attache office in Seoul, was able to see how uh, national security was both implemented and supported by our defense attaches around the world. Eventually became a, a contract translator that led me to to join CIA back in, in the mid-1990s as a as first a senior language officer, then a media analyst, looking at North Korea media, analyzing speeches of, of Kim Jong-il, uh, not many at that time, joint editorials from their official media, kind of understanding the narrative that North Korea portrays through its public statements and propaganda. Uh, I actually led a, a bureau that was responsible for that collection and processing of open source media. And then I jumped to the, the, the Directorate of Operations, where I was able to uh, get an exposure to human operations, work as a branch chief and later as a deputy group chief there. I then, in at a time after supporting the six-party talks under the Bush administration, learn the, the tradecraft of, of analysis as done by the agency when I joined the then Directorate of Intelligence. Eventually, when the uh, DNI was stood up, and part of the DNI stand-up was to stand up these mission managers. There were four at the time, proliferation handled under NCPC, the National Counterproliferation Center, terrorism handled under the National Counterterrorism Center, and Iran and North Korea. So together with Joe Detrani, 
who I'd worked with for a number of years, both at, at the agency and at State Department, we stood up the office of North Korea Mission Manager, and the DNI position allowed me to see the community uh, and its efforts in the collection and analytic realms against the North Korea target across what were then 16 agencies and to understand how uh, budgeting and programmatics help support the allocation of resources against uh, North Korea and other competing high target issues. It was at that position uh, where I was able to ad- attend a senior level policy uh, making, uh, policy uh, committees, deputies committee, principal committee meetings, uh, came to the attention of the Obama team at that time and was asked to serve at the National Security Council. I was a CREA director at the National Security Council for three and a half years, a period of uh, robust interactions with North Korea in the, in the 2010, 2011, 2012 time period. Uh, major developments in the North Korean nuclear issue, efforts to advance the U.S.-DPRK relationship. Uh, finally spent one year as the U.S. Special Envoy uh, for six-party talks, uh, responsible for communications with North Korea through the New York Channel, working with the other allies on the North Korean nuclear issue. And then finally, after uh, I had been out of the intelligence community for, community for about five years, came back in and spent four years or so out in Korea, serving as a senior analyst for U.S. Forces Korea. A very unique assignment, uh, seeing how the great work of the intelligence community across a variety of tactical, operational, strategic issues helped uh, serve the commander, U.S. Forces Korea, who was also dual-headed as commander, combined forces command with our South Korean counterparts, the commander of the United Nations Command, to see how the intelligence product uh, fed the war maker. It was another, uh, it kind of brought me full circle from having started uh, as a military SIGINT linguist. And I returned in September last year to take over the current job of National Intelligence Officer for North Korea. It was a great time to take it uh, as we moved through the presidential transition, as we looked at where we were, what we had accomplished under the four years of the Trump administration in our diplomacy with North Korea, and how we could feed, how the intelligence community would provide, you know, solid, well-supported analysis to help support the policy review and the transition to the new administration of the policy review. So, yeah, it's been a very rewarding career, if atypical. I've been able to uh, acquire the language, which was extremely helpful over the years. My uh, negotiating experience with multiple administrations helped me to see, you know, diplomacy unfolding firsthand. And of course, working on the policymaker side, I also served for for a number of years as a as a customer of our intelligence products. So I've been at, on all sides of the intelligence cycle. Yeah, it's fascinating. Very Absolutely, you have. Yes. So, Sid, can you just tell our listeners what a national intelligence officer does? Well, Michael, there's a variety of responsibilities we have. I think primarily as members of the National Intelligence Council, you know, we're looked to to uh, provide strategic analysis on North Korea to, you know, appreciating all the hard work that's done in the tactical day-to-day production of the PDB or support to the warfighter that the National Intelligence Council, uh, you know, takes a, a higher altitude look at the targets we, we focus on and and coordinate the intelligence community's strategic analysis to help 
provide policymakers with uh, uh, well-sourced, uh, well-caveated, uh, well-researched uh, IC intelligence community uh, analysis in support of policymaking. And of course, there's many extensions to that, doing outreach like we're doing now. There's uh, following our recent annual threat assessment that the DNI provided to, to Congress, you know, helping to ensure that the American public understands, you know, exactly the threats that our nation is facing, what our intelligence agencies are doing to protect them, and give them a, a confidence that, you know, U.S. policy is, is based upon really solid uh, intelligence and where we lack, where there's gaps, that those are made clear. And so, you know, overseeing this, uh, both production and, and how we provide our product to senior policymakers really is the core of, of my job as the NIO for North Korea. So, Sid, you've been to North Korea. What's it like to visit? I remember my first trip to North Korea was uh, during the Madeleine Albright visit, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright visited in October of 2000. And having worked the issue for a number of decades already, it was an issue, if you can imagine, working on a topic, a current topic, for which you have absolutely no opportunity to actually enter the country and and get a direct feel for it. Uh, It was fascinating. Mm -hmm to be able to go in and, and confirm many of the things, many of the, the assumptions that I had about North Korea, uh, to revise a number of them, to bring a human face to you know, an academic understanding, uh, understand the importance of individuals, understand the importance of culture. Uh, North Korea in October 2000 was you know, in the middle of an arduous march. Uh, a, a country that had been transformed by the collapse of the Cold War structure uh, had suffered some natural disasters, particularly, you know, it's either floods one year or drought the next. Uh, and it was really a, a, a country that you get a sense that every North Korean is a survivor. They're surviving in a very harsh environment. Uh, and, and so going there and, and getting a feel for that really uh, deepened my appreciation for what, what you might call the ontological dimensions of North Korea. What, what is it that makes North Korea different? We always hear this, is North Korea, is Kim rational or his father irrational? It's not a matter of rationality or irrationality. It's a rationality that's based upon a, a, a different ontological nature to the regime. And going there in person uh, really helped me understand that over my visits over time. Have you been to one of those highly choreographed children's performances where they tell the history of North Korea in one of those massive stadiums? I did. I, in fact, my first experience was during the, the Secretary Albright visit when, when she attended that event. I actually had the, the uh, opportunity to go as kind of a mini advance party together with uh, diplomatic security to do the pre-event uh, kind of look at the facilities and walk into a stadium filled with about 130,000 people are not staring at you in absolute silence. It was a very eerie feeling. And then sitting in those stands as the delegation, Secretary Albright, Kim Jong-il walked in the stadium and hear the incredible roar and thunder of the applause. And then at the end of it, uh, the delegation walks out and the whole stadium goes deathly quiet and a, and a voice comes out 
in a monotone saying, please remain in your seat till all the foreigners have left. And it was a fascinating uh, experience of how uh, emotions can be manipulated and turned on and off, but also how important you know, the, what's in those shows that many people don't realize is the national narrative of North Korea. It really is a, mm-hmm. a, a master propaganda performance, not a show of arts and gymnastics, although they're incorporated, but an effort to, to demonstrate, you know, North Korea's meta narrative. So it was, uh, you know, I, we know from various uh, participants that the rehearsals are grueling. They come at great human cost to the North Korean people, let alone the material resources that are dedicated to them. They, you know, they are appalling waste of resources that could be dedicated to other, you know, to feeding the North Korea people for one. But at the same time, I understand the perceived propaganda. I don't support it, but I understand the perceived propaganda importance of those events to the North Korean regime, as well as their pride in having foreigners sit and watch those events. Sid, you've dealt directly with North Korean officials. What is that like? Negotiations with North Korea are never easy. And and often you walk away with, you know, a question of whether a negotiation had actually taken place or simply an exchange of views. What we need to re- understand when we talk about negotiating with North Korea, I think first of all, is that we are always talking to the right person. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether you know President Trump is meeting directly with Kim Jong Un, or or low level meeting is taking place through the New York Channel, or a Track 1.5 is taking place in some European country, we are always limited in in the level with whom we engage based upon Pyongyang's intent. And so, when Pyongyang wants to be serious and move forward in a certain area, we see a very serious uh, business like yet cordial interaction with our North Korean counterparts. And when they're not interested in a deal, there is just simply no uh, budging them. So I, I hear a lot about, you know, sometimes we're not talking to the right people or, or some channels work, other channels don't. I think those are, those are I, I call them myths of the negotiating uh, process that, you know, again, when North Korea comes to the table, and they usually do so with a specific uh, objective, then then some progress can be made. I also believe, though, that over the 30 years, 30-some year course of, of our negotiations with North Korea, uh, you know, we have yet to really engage with the North that's come to the table trying to work together with us to solve a problem. And th- this doesn't mean that's, that's impossible. And I think the new administration's uh, policy review and its commitment towards uh, flexibility and, and, and practical and calibrated interactions with the North is, is a good way to constantly test that. But in our experiences to date, we, we see that North Korea really hasn't uh, been willing to move much beyond, you know, a very basic core areas in which they're willing to show flexibility while maintaining strong rigidity in other areas. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Sid Seiler. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Sid, I interacted with, you know, literally hundreds of foreign officials over the years, and I've always found that you find something personal to bond over, you know, a love of a particular sport, your families. Does that happen with North Korean officials or not? Well, Michael, we certainly have discussions that can touch upon, you know, personal areas and you can build a relationship. And, you know, the the key negotiators on the North Korean side, starting with, uh, you know, Chae Sun-hee, who is currently the first vice foreign minister, Kim Gae-gwan, who used to be the first vice foreign minister, uh, other senior level officials with whom we've had an opportunity to meet. There clearly is a human side to them. Uh, but, you know, these are, you know, negotiators. And I don't know that the human side, the question about personal bonding, uh, bonding with, with negotiators on the other side is as important on the North Korea issue as it may be in other issues. Uh, in large part, you know, again, if you look at how North Korea has primarily used negotiations over the past uh, 30 years, going back primarily to the 1994 agreed framework between the United States and the, and, and the DPRK, which committed to halting operations of the five megawatt reactor, which was producing plutonium for the program at that time. And maybe even before that, the, the North-South uh, negotiations that led to the production of, in 1992-ish, a uh, North-South denuclearization declaration. Through all of those uh, negotiations, even up to today, uh, you, analytically speaking, none of those negotiations appear to design to have, have, in a sustained manner, laid the road for a new U.S. DPRK relationship or a new North-South Korea relationship that was sustainable and that involved North Korea walking away from its nuclear program, which has been the centerpiece of all of our negotiations. So whether you can bond with a, a North Korean official over coffee at a Starbucks in Beijing or, you know, at a, at a meeting up in New York or at a track 1.5 in another country, or even during a visit to Pyongyang, to me, really, I have not seen that translate into anything, you know, particular mm. in terms of negotiating uh, leverage or negotiating enabling relationships. So what is Kim Jong-un like as a person, as a leader? How would you describe him? Well, Michael, you can imagine that's a question that I'm asked a lot. And, you know, I, I like to deflect attention away from elements of Kim's personality. I think particularly, in, you know, among academics, there's a lot of speculation uh, about Kim and his personality. I like to look at North Korea's behavior and its public actions uh, to try to assess where Kim Jong-un is, particularly in comparison to his, his father and, and his grandfather. I, you know, clearly his father uh, came into uh, power in 1994 upon the death of his uh, grandfather. So Kim Jong-il by the time he took office in 19 or took power in 1994 he had had 
almost two decades of experience getting his feet wet in, in state and party affairs and national security affairs. Kim Jong-un's preparatory time because of you know, the stroke of uh, his father in 2008 and eventually Kim Jong-il's death in 2011, he had a very compressed amount of time to be prepared to assume the office. But I always thought that Kim had an intellectual understanding about uh, North Korea, its place in the world, the threats, and I don't mean just military threats, I mean ideological and cultural and even historical threats that North Korea faced and and what type of control mechanisms were necessary to keep the Kim family in place uh, to prevent North Korea from meeting the same fate that all the other Eastern Bloc countries had met in the 1990s. So Kim came to power with an intellectual understanding of that uh, and since has been seeking a way to promote that. I think his actions over the years have have been marked by a number of what I would call major mistakes. Uh, maybe only time will tell uh, whether indeed at the end of the day he was brilliant. But I think what we need to remember, first of all, is while the nuclear program goes on, we are not talking about a strong and prosperous state when we're talking about North Korea. Uh, the economy is in shambles. Part of it's COVID, part of it's natural disasters, part of it's a socialist system, part of it is the sanctions that the country remains under because of the bad policy decisions made going back years. Kim's father, Kim Jong-il, had the wisdom to proclaim an arduous march and make suffering and isolation and hardships a virtue, making a virtue out of a necessity, given the diplomatic results, diplomatic blowback from his pursuit of nuclear weapons over the course of his rule from 1994 to 2011. When Kim Jong-un came into power in 2012, he had an opportunity to, to engage with the United States we, uh, and, and take the relationship down a different path. We, we struck a Leap Day understanding in 2012, which took place about two and a half months into his rule, uh, which would have laid the groundwork for uh, moving forward on denuclearization, sure, it would have been hard when we got back to the six-party talks, but at least in his early formative days, he could have had a better relationship with the United States. Instead, after two weeks after concluding the agreement, he launches a Tapodong missile that undermines the agreement. And then in 2013, instead of taking advantage of four more years of the Obama administration, Kim engages in another Tapodong II long-range missile launch and then in a nuclear test and for the and declares in 2013 that the north will have its cake and eat it too by simultaneously pursuing nuclear development and economic development and well since 2013 the north has had made progress on its nuclear missile programs the the promise made to the north korean people that they could have nuclear weapons and a better economic life proved false the same happened in hanoi raised expectations that a corner had been turned, new relationship with the United States, a brighter future. And then Kim goes and leaves Hanoi, not showing any flexibility. And now in more recent past, declaring again a new arduous march, a new period of isolation and austerity, uh, making promises to the North Koreans 
people and having to break them, having to regroup. And so, you know, going forward, uh, he has he, he will undoubtedly have uh, opportunities. Uh, the the Moon, Jae, Moon Jae-in administration has proven to be a great opportunity for North Korea to advance inter-Korean relations, and he squandered it away. There's still a year left, though. Uh, the Biden administration has announced this policy and openness to dialogue, so there's a new opportunity. It'll be an interesting way as an analyst to judge whether Kim has learned anything from the mistakes of his past. So, Sid, why does North Korea believe it needs a strategic weapons program, both nuclear weapons and ICBMs? What's their thinking? What's their rationale? What's their logic? Well, you know, borrowing from our annual threat assessment language, you know, where we say right up front that Kim views nuclear weapons as an ultimate deterrent against foreign intervention and believes that over time he'll get international acceptance and respect as a nuclear power. The, the answer to your question, Michael, starts with like an honest assessment of the threat North Korea believes it faces. And if you look at the history of this issue, I believe what you see is, you know, we often hear about the example of Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi reinforcing uh, for North Korea why it needs a nuclear weapon with the United States that when it decides to do so on a whim will overthrow a country with which it is, is unsatisfied. I actually think the threat that North Korea faces goes back to the collapse of the Cold War. And as as, these, as the socialist bloc countries fell one at a time, uh, and South Korea grew stronger and stronger from the late 1980s through the 1990s, North Korea's world was turned upside down. And we see three major trends during that period. First of all, is an atrophy of its conventional force. A conventional force balance shifts as no, North Korea is no longer able to train and equip a large conventional force like it previously had. The second thing we see is the deployment of long-range artillery that can rain down large volume of shells against the greater Seoul metropolitan area. A weapon of mass destruction that's not really a weapon of mass destruction, but nevertheless can a counter-value targeting capability that holds Seoul at risk. As North Korea beginning around that same time period, that 90-91 time period, the first you know, production of what we assessed at the time was possibly one to two weapons worth of plutonium up to today, uh, using the nuclear deterrent as a way to, again, act as the ultimate deterrent against foreign intervention, not invasion, 67 years of armistice, you know, repeated North Korean provocations in which U.S. and Republic of Korea have shown restraint in responding. North Korea can be highly confident that neither the U.S. or the Republic of Korea have any hostile intentions to invade the North. What they fear is the penetration of ideology, the penetration of thoughts, the penetration of economic influence that would make the regime weak, possibly lead to an uprising of the North Korean people, and then lead to that foreign intervention. You know, if it were simply a matter of concern over the U.S. ROK military threat, you know, security assurances could address uh, those worries. If it was a matter of their concern over strategic bomber flights, we could pull those back. If it really was a concern over exercises, there are a lot of things we could do. The problem is the fundamental threat Kim perceives his regime faces is one that we really can't resolve. 
if the existential threat North Korea faces is a liberal democratic free market capitalist human rights respecting South Korea and the example that South Korea provides of what North Korea could be if not for the Kim regime, it's going to be very difficult to assess that threat in a way that would assuage uh, the regime and the elites about the inevitable fall of history, perhaps uh, leading North Korea to the same fate as their socialist bloc uh, brethren. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Sid, you know this country better than anyone. Can you imagine a situation where the North Korean leadership has its concerns assuaged? Or is that just not foreseeable? Well, Michael, the last several years of the Moon Jae-in administration uh, have been- This is the South Korean president, right? South right? Korean this president. This is the South Korean president, yeah. Uh, have been marked by a remarkable effort to establish uh, a permanent peace, to find a new path for inter-Korea relations, to, to give- Kim Jong-un and the North Korean people confidence that the South is not out to bring an end to the regime, that it's not actively pursuing unification through absorption, uh, that it's not out to transform the culture through information penetration. Uh, the current Moon administration in, in Seoul has, has made great efforts to addressing all of these concerns that one would, would say fall under that that title of ideologically threatening actions by the Republic of Korea or by the outside world. And here we sit today with an absolute refusal to engage with the South on, on Kim Jong-un's part and a, an ongoing active anti uh, campaign to eradicate anti-socialist and non-socialist behavior. Another reminder that Whatever liberalization may have taken place in North Korea in terms of uh, tolerance of free market activity, tolerance of even watching, uh, where, adopting South Korean hairstyles or watching South Korean videos, that whatever liberalization may have taken place, it's you know, if what China is doing is seeking a neo-totalitarianism, what we see in North Korea is a pursuit of a retro totalitarianism, mm. uh, hunkering down. Uh, importantly, I mean, we've all focused on the, the sealing of the borders and the limitations of movement in North Korea related to uh, anti-pandemic efforts with the advent of COVID. But North Korea, even before COVID, in, in a January uh, 2020 proclamation, had already said that they had turned, they were turning away from any hopes diplomacy would bring sanctions relief the North Korean people would have to learn to live under sanctions for the protracted period. Any desire, any thought that 
the North should rely on contacts, interactions with the outside, was nation-selling treasonous behavior. So already North Korea was looking very insularly how to isolate themselves from the outside world. And, and this is the challenge we faced in trying to figure out how to build trust with North Korea uh, in a regime that seems to thrive on building distrust of the outside, of creating enemies, whether they exist or not, of, of justifying the regime's rule in the face of outside external threats and, and perpetual conflict. Uh, but I remember a wise analyst friend of mine who, who always liked to say when we talked about uh, these types of assessments, never say never. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know who that is, Michael, right? We never say never because <laughs> we, we, we right. can't be so deterministic in our assessments that we don't leave ourselves open to that possibility. And as you can imagine, yeah. I don't want to go through them all one by one, but you know, there, there would be a number of indicators, number of things that we could see if indeed uh, the regime was moving down an alternative path. And there's a number of incentives. And I think the South Korean people and the South Korean leadership have thought about this a lot, about how you could incentivize North Korea coming out of the closet, as it were, coming out of its isolation. So looking forward, I don't want to say that there's no possibilities for, for such uh, an opening. Uh, but I, I would say that contrary to maybe what many commentators would assess, the United States and Republic of Korea have for years under conservative, liberal, democratic, Republican administrations all pursued uh, an improvement of relations with North Korea. And North Korea is well aware of, of the benefits of going down that road uh, and also what we would ask in return for it. So it's not a matter of North Korea not understanding what it would get from denuclearization or you know, not understanding what we want in denuclearization. Uh, or what building a permanent peace on the peninsula would look like. They're well aware of it. They simply, until now, have, have not desired to move down that path. Sid, what can we expect from Kim Jong-un and North Korea in the short term in terms of their likely response to uh, the steps the Biden administration has taken and the policy it has outlined? Around uh, January 8th or so, North Korea issued a report on a party congress that the Workers' Party of Korea had held. Uh, I, I see it as somewhat, I mean, it covers a whole range of issues from domestic economic to ideological to foreign policy to national defense. But it almost, it almost has a flavor of a North Korea, uh, North Korean policy review of its own type. And the important thing to note about this readout of the Eighth Party Congress, they talked about success in terms of uh, nuclear development over the previous period of the Seventh Party Congress, five years or so, how they had achieved success in intermediate range ballistic missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles, submarine launch ballistic missiles, and even tactical nuclear weapons. And the, and the readout also gave direction on areas that North Korea would focus on in the future to include multiple uh, independently uh, targeted reentry vehicles, uh, modernizing medium-sized submarines, uh, even pursuing a nuclear submarine itself, and overall improving its capabilities across a number of WMD and weapon systems. So there's a strategic intent there that, to some degree, in its proclamation, uh, 
it shows North Korea's commitment to its its WMD program and what it plans to do in the future. I think equally importantly is that this uh, report was issued prior to the U.S.'s own, United States' own policy review on North Korea, as though uh, Kim had wanted to preempt whatever our mm. policy mm. review might entail by saying, this is what I'm doing. I don't care what you do. We can talk. If and North has said, we will respond to goodwill with goodwill. We will respond to coercion with hardline responses. So independent of that, this is the path we are on, was the message that was included there. That takes a lot of burden off North Korea to make points with the new administration or make, you know, respond to international expectations that it would greet the new U.S. administration with some type of provocative actions, mm-hmm. short range, medium range, intermediate range, long range, or even a, a ballistic missile launches, or even a return uh, to nuclear testing. So in a way, you know, North Korea would, would argue it's, it it's, has its own timeline. It's not driven by wanting to make a point. We call these actions provocative. I don't like the use of that term because their major objective is not to provoke us. Their, their objectives are to develop and demonstrate new capabilities. They're diplomatically uh, calibrated to take place when the blowback is manageable uh, or ongoing negotiations may make some restraint uh, necessary. And they're domestically signaled. Uh, but the primary objective is not simply to provoke for the sake of provoking. I think we look at the Eighth Party Congress list and, you know, again, getting back to uh, what we said in the annual threat assessment, uh, that, you know, currently the pressure on the regime is not going to be a complete deterrent uh, that would require a fundamental change to this approach. At the same time, though, in terms of the larger headline-grabbing actions, such as an ICBM launch or a nuclear test, Kim may see, you know, the, his current situation is better served by by holding off and waiting. Sid, we have about a minute left, and let me just ask you one last question. Many analysts of North Korea over the years have assessed that the regime can't last, right? That it's inconsistent with history um, and that it will eventually fail. Is that your view or not? You know, Michael, deep in my heart, you know, I, I I like to believe that the North Korean people want better and deserve better. I, I'm reminded of a debate that took place a decade or so ago, maybe a couple of decades now, between then Singaporean leader Lee Kuan Yew and uh, Kim Dae-jung, who, who was a, op- a well-known opposition leader, president of the Republic of Korea, in, in the early 2000s. And, and the debate centered around whether, you know, Asians inherently were thrived under authoritarian control. And Kim Dae-jung made a very persuasive argument that, you know, essentially said there's, it's, it's an insult to the Asian people to think that they do not aspire to the same happiness and freedom uh, that has been enjoyed over the, over the, the centuries by the West. And, and I kind of hold that as a, a reminder that the North Korean people deserve and want more. We, we're watching China trying to navigate this, how, how to maintain a, uh, a neo-totalitarian, authoritarian uh, state and party apparatus that retains control while still seeing economic benefits and prosperity. 
adapting to an evolving international environment and trying to shape that international environment. Perhaps North Korea will be able to continue to show flexibility and be able to resist uh, these pressures. But, you know, we always like to say North Korea is stable but brittle. There's a lot of, you know, elements of uncertainty and vulnerability in the North. Uh, and that will be the challenge for the regime going forward is how they navigate these pressures. And I think the jury is still out. Sid, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a real lesson in North Korea. So thank you for taking the time. I know you're extraordinarily busy, but thank you. No, Michael, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Sid Seiler. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.